0: It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. We, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment.
1: Welcome, welcome back to mic Up on Ohm. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden, and I'm here with the show today uh, that was inspired Uh, by recent headlines. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, South Carolina has made national news for all the wrong reasons this week or toward the tail end of this week. Uh, So this show is gonna be um, an education for some uh, or a reminder to a lot of others about the history of entitlement programs, but specifically SNAP benefits, food stamp benefits. Um, We're gonna touch on the history throughout the country on, uh, these, uh, benefit programs and why the current, um, administration, uh, the current white house has just gone full on assault in terms of restricting these programs even more, um, from what they once were. And so this show is going to explain some of the, the, uh, a lot of the history of, uh, these programs, the racial history, uh, that, uh, This program, these programs have kind of fall victim to, um, uh, you know, the myth of the welfare queen. And so this is going to be an episode where it's going to feature a lot of news clips from other outlets. We're going to have some audio featured from uh, NPR, uh, the Associated Press, uh, PBS NewsHour. And I'm also going to read from. Uh, an article that made its way to my, I'm going to say phone, not my desk um, Shout out to Paul Bowers, uh, the, a former reporter, education reporter with the Post and Courier He tweeted an article last night that caught my eye from New York Magazine And it is um, titled, South Carolina Punishes Poor Parents for Christmas And it's all about, um, it, this is following, this, this is on the tail end of some pretty, you um, damaging legislation just passed by 45 at the white house so this week it was announced that trump would be kicking folks off of snap benefits again or uh food stamps uh, and making it harder to receive those benefits uh, and so south carolina of course doubled down and now is and i'm going to read from the article uh that south carolina is the first non-medicaid expansion state to now, uh, to receive a waiver, which requires folks receiving um food assistance to uh, have to to they have to now work a minimum of eighty hours a month. And for a lot of folks, that might sound innocent and even reasonable, but this show will kind of explain to you why these barriers to receiving aid when you're already poor, destitute. Um, why these shenanigans actually happen because a lot of people on SNAP benefits are already working. Um, yeah, we're just going to just dive into all of these like myths and why uh, certain administrations employ these tactics and we'll be surprised as well. So the first clip is going to give you, um, it's just going to catch you up to speed if you don't know about the current legislation. This first clip um, is going to help you understand what just came down the pike and then it's going to be followed by an Associated Press clip. So just listen up.
2: Well, the Trump administration today announced new rules that would change the way some people can get food stamps, which are known as SNAP benefits. Currently, about 36 million Americans receive this help buying groceries. As William Brangham now reports, the administration argues this change will save billions of dollars by removing millions of people from the food stamp rolls.
3: That's right, Omna. The administration argues it needs to close a loophole in the food stamp program that allows some people with savings and other assets. To get benefits that the administration argues they do not deserve. In a call yesterday, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue repeatedly cited the case of one retired Minnesota millionaire named Rob Undersander. This is him in a video produced by a conservative advocacy group. Undersander was able to enroll in the food stamp program and says he received benefits for almost two years. He says he did it to prove a point and that he gave the money to charity. The administration said closing this loophole would save $2.5 billion and remove about 3 million people from eligibility. Joining me now is Elaine Waxman. She's a senior fellow at the Urban Institute, where she studies federal food programs like the SNAP program. Welcome to the NewsHour.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: So, if these rules go forward, the administration says about 3 million people will be booted out of the food stamp program. What do we know about who those 3 million people are?
4: So, what we know about those who are likely to be affected by the rules change, should it go through, is that they are typically working families. They have low earnings, because they can still qualify for a SNAP benefit. Um, But they are disproportionately working. Um, They also disproportionately tend to have children. So, in both cases, these are groups of people that the administration typically talks about in terms of wanting to be sure and support, that they want to encourage work. Unfortunately, those are the groups that are probably most likely to be hurt.
3: So, help me understand why then the administration holds up an example like this Minnesota millionaire, as someone who clearly has plenty of assets, maybe not, I believe he's retired and so he didn't have a lot of income. Why do they hold up that gentleman as an example of why they need to cut these other people off the program?
4: I think it's a little bit of a distraction because what we know from USDA's own data is that less than 1% of SNAP benefits go to people who have incomes above the federal poverty line. So we're reaching exactly the audiences we want to reach. There's no evidence of widespread fraud. And it's allowed states to be responsive to families that are maybe earning a little bit more income and at risk of losing benefits if they get a 50 cent an hour increase in their wages. Um, If that happens and they lose SNAP benefits, they may actually be worse off. Those are the kinds of things that states have been trying to avoid.
3: One of the arguments that, that the administration seems to be making is that states need to do a better job of checking people's assets. Again, this millionaire example is seemingly someone who had banked a considerable amount of money. What is the argument for not making sure people have no assets before you grant them food
4: stamps? So, if you think about it, we want people to have some level of assets because that is their buffer against unexpected expenses and emergencies. For example, among seniors, we are very concerned that they may be in a position of having to spend down their limited resources without any opportunity to replace that with earnings. Um, We want people to be able to cover an emergency room visit or uh, a car repair that allows them to go back to work without going into debt. Um, So this is a program that has allowed the relaxation of some of those um, assets. and also um, has reached exactly the population that we want to help serve, which is again, those people who are really um, working hard to improve their outcomes.
3: We should say for the record that we asked the Agricultural Secretary to come on the program, and he uh, declined that invitation. But the administration seems to be arguing that the economy is doing well, unemployment is incredibly low, and so it's okay that it's appropriate to make these types of cuts to this program.
4: So here's where we are. Even though the economy is improving, we still have 36 million people who qualify for SNAP. Um, We know that people are getting work at higher rates, but the kinds of work they're getting is not necessarily high-paid and not stable hours. That's what we're facing. In the absence of a dramatic change in people's circumstances, which we're not seeing in this current economy. If you terminate SNAP benefits, we can anticipate that more people will be food insecure and more people will be in poverty, because we know from research that SNAP combats those two things. We really worry about that, because food-insecure families are more likely to experience hospitalizations. Children are less likely to do well in school. Uh, seniors who are food insecure are more likely to have chronic health problems. So we might save some money in one particular aspect of our expenditures. It'll show up somewhere else.
3: All right, Elaine Waxman of the Urban Institute. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you.
5: This rule, um, it's affecting seven. will potentially affect 7% of total SNAP recipients. Um, So that is still hundreds of thousands of SNAP recipients, so we're not taking this lightly. And able-bodied adults without dependents, um, which uh, is the population that will be affected by this rule, um, they are temporarily unemployed. Um, Again, they are a lot of people who uh, are struggling with um, mental illness, addiction, um, veterans. Um, so they're, re- they're really going after uh, the most vulnerable Americans. And the able-bodied adults without dependents, um, ABODs, they only make up 7 percent of the total SNAP recipients. Um, so USDA is really focusing on a small number of SNAP recipients here and it's really more of a political play um, rather than an attempt to decrease hunger. You know, it's just a way for the Trump administration to really, you know, show to uh, its base that they are making um, access to public benefits uh, much more strict. Um, but it's really not doing anything to decrease hunger.
1: So um, I hope that that last clip especially helped, uh, especially hearing from those on the front lines who are working uh, in communities, poor communities, more marginalized communities helps you understand the gravity of this problem and how it impacts poor citizens. Um, but specifically, um, how you can you can kind of draw a line or uh, conclude rather uh, how this may impact South Carolinians here um, who already face uh, a lot of a lot of barriers to access to aid and r- relief. Um, let me take a moment here to have uh, a little music break and uh, all music featured on this episode you can find out more information at www.bennystarsc.com uh, yeah and we'll come I back right after this to break feel
6: and to create and then to be felt growing up where i grew up in pineville in the low country of south carolina water had such a profound impact on our traditions and the culture where you know what we ate how we lived Water is, is, is the life force, is rebirth and renewal. You know, it's real spiritual. And water also takes the form that it needs to take in order to do what it's purposed to do. And as I'm here in Charleston, in a city that's literally underwater, a city that in many ways has been the gateway to the black experience in America, with so many of its people still under the thumb of oppression, there is no more perfect metaphor. For me, it's not an absence of fear. It's embracing the fear, using it to go forward. It's not an absence of love, pain, strength, or vulnerability, but it's embracing all of it, owning all of it, and using it to push forward. It's the spirit of creativity, collaboration, and community. It's restlessness, and rage, poetry, jazz. It's healing. It's beautiful. It's black, and it's political. Like me, like my people. Nestle water out. Yeah. I stare death in the face gracefully. Over mimosas, cheese, crepes, and pastries Caressing life in the small of her back Smiling, she turns to smile back through a foundation of facts My hands on her spine, dividing page after page I peek into my past and my future I can read the psalms on a parchment Gripped by the sweaty palms of a prophet I can see the chakras in the sutras. My life is clothed in a spiritual cloth. I dice clothes in my ritual broth. I'm as wild as the Scottish summer Isles. I'm a god in my African garb. On the white sand beaches of Zanzibar, I am a traveling man. Land so expansive, official transcripts of my transit don't enhance it. I can feel the thread from the loom on the bed. I'm going dying. The hospital room, I re-arriving at the resurrection. Yeah, come on feel it a little bread a little wine and it's fine at the resurrection yeah can you picture me naked sacred and sublime at the resurrection yeah yeah i've died several times and now i rise at the resurrection yeah yeah a little bread a little wine and it's i am the joy of an innocent boy I am the blessed overtones of those double X chromosomes I'm a critical study, exceptional math I'm theory and praxis, the intellectual class I am doubtful, I am hopeful, I am vocal and I'm complex Holy city, black, local, in a global context I'm the history and the prophecy, I'm benevolent I'm heirs property swallowed up by development Uh, I am depression and expression, I'm water and blood I am the comfort and the company misery loves I am the solemn oath and the broken promises The feelings of desire, the higher consciousness I am burdened, feeling unworthy though I am alive I am feeling lost on a journey though I have arrived Needing moments of my own peace though I am denied Every day I cry a little inside Hoping to rise at the resurrection Yeah, yeah, yeah a little bread a little wine is fine at the resurrection yeah can you picture me naked sacred and sublime at the resurrection yeah yeah i've died several times and now i rise at the resurrection yeah uh come on a little bread a little wine and it's I am the fruitful bud of African native folks ushered into bondage for garments I am the revelatory shine of gold and fine diamonds mined from those remote climates I'm the work song, the blues lick I am the orphan's improvisational jazz, yes, I am the drums and the brass I'm all of the exploited, the boycotted, the black dollar The boy children, adolescent, the black father A broken chain, a vocal refrain I'm a James Jameson bass in a Berry Gordy domain I'm a James Brown tenor, shout screaming out, holding notes The pride of my poor southern black working folks I'm a rebel on these chords, I'm a funk brother over routine rice cuisine, I am the gullah words of my grandmother. On a chillin' better mind, consequences of decisions when it's time for the resurrection. Yeah, can you, uh, a little bread, a little wine is fine at the resurrection. Yeah, can you picture me naked, sacred and sublime at the resurrection? Yeah, huh? I've died several times and now I rise at the resurrection. Yeah, huh? A little bread, a little wine, and it's fine at the resurrection. Yeah, listen, I died several times and now I rise at the resurrection. Yeah. Oh, can you picture me naked, sacred, and sublime at the resurrection? Yeah. Come on, I've died several times and now I rise at the resurrection. Yeah, huh? Listen, a little bread, a little wine, and it's fine at the resurrection.
1: Okay, welcome back to Miked Up on OM. I'm your host Mika Gadsden, and today we're talking about the recent legislation handed down by the Trump administration, uh, the sweeping reforms to SNAP benefit recipients or SNAP, the SNAP benefit program, um, and also most recently, um, what just made news Thursday night um, is what with Henry McMaster. Uh, uh, just co-signed here in South Carolina, making it even more uh, restrictive to receive, or making it even more difficult. Let me slow down a little bit more difficult to receive SNAP benefits if you're poor uh, in South Carolina. We're gonna get into the the sweeping reforms that we've that that the program has um, fallen prey to going back to the 90s. A little bit later in the show. Uh, we'll have some great sound that outlines this history, um, and uh, but this next clip is going to give you even more background. This is an NPR clip, and what this will do is give you um, speak with people on the ground, much like the AP clip that I just played. Um, speak with folks on the ground that can really contextualize this issue and uh, help you see how this impacts people directly. How these, you know, we need to take these people from being numbers. And uh, flesh them out, like literally flesh them out so you understand the faces and the people and the kinds of people who will be adversely affected by this legislation and by McMaster's extra step that wasn't even necessary of um, becoming the first um, non-Medicaid expansion state to um, use this waiver that uh, makes work requirements even more Uh, you know just place another barrier in front of uh, receiving this aid so here's a clip that gives you a little bit more background uh, and then we'll come back and talk more about that article from New York Mag that was recently published Um, Yeah. So tune in. Hundreds of thousands of
5: people are likely to lose their food stamps,
1: technically known as
5: the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP. That is because the Trump administration announced today that it is tightening work requirements for the food aid program. NPR's Pam Fessler reports.
2: The administration says it wants to encourage those who get SNAP benefits to work especially now that the economy is doing so well. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue says the aid was never intended to be permanent, but to help people through difficult times.
7: We're taking action to reform our SNAP program in order to restore the dignity of work to a sizable segment of our population and be respectful of the taxpayers fund the program.
2: And the change, which is set to go into effect in April, would save an estimated five billion dollars over the next five years. But it also means that nearly 700,000 able-bodied, childless adults will lose their benefits. People like Troy Williams of Baltimore, who told NPR earlier this year that he wouldn't be able to meet the 20-hour-a-week work requirement because he has a seasonal job. Doing janitorial work at the city's baseball and football stadiums.
6: And it's hard finding a full time job. So, I mean, I would, I would be hurting. I would, I, I would be hurting.
2: He already relies on a local food pantry to supplement his one hundred and ninety-two dollar a month SNAP benefit. Anti-hunger advocates say there are many more SNAP recipients out there like Williams, those who have some work but not enough, or who have been unable to find jobs even if they've been looking. Opponents of the rules say it's not only cruel but counterproductive.
6: We think that people will be hungrier and they will be less able to secure permanent and steady work, not more able.
2: Jessica Bartholo is with the Western Center on Law and Poverty in California, one of thousands of groups that came out against the new rule after it was proposed last spring. She says her center represents many people, including those who are homeless or have a mental disability, who could have a hard time proving that they meet the new requirements.
6: Even if they are working 20 hours a week, Many people will struggle to document that. A lot of people who are low income and who turn to the SNAP program to prevent hunger work in jobs that don't regularly provide. In fact,
2: the additional paperwork and reporting requirements have drawn objections from states, which fear that they'll end up bearing the costs. Earlier this year, 21 state attorneys general came out against the new rule. They said it undermined the purpose of the food aid program, which is to alleviate hunger and malnutrition. But the Trump administration notes that the change only applies to able-bodied adults between the ages of 18 and 49, and that individuals can also meet Meet the requirements by volunteering or getting job training. Opponents say such opportunities are limited, and some, like the Western Center, are already considering legal action to prevent the new rule from going into effect. Pam Fessler, NPR News, Washington.
1: This is Mic'd Up on Ohm Radio. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden, and today's show is dedicated to uh, unpacking the recent legislation handed down by the Trump administration, uh, uh, new laws that will be enacted that will restrict of access to SNAP benefits. SNAP benefits are also commonly referred to as uh, food stamps. And last night, an article was published by New York Magazine that I'd like to read from. Um, I chose this article because it features South Carolina, and there's new uh, laws that uh, Henry McMaster just uh, signed into to law, or he's about to enact. Um, please pardon my phrasing of this whole laws and legislation um, but let me just read from the article from New York magazine days after the Trump administration finalized a proposal that will kick hundreds of thousands of people off of food stamps the state of South Carolina delivered its own special holiday present to the poor on Thursday afternoon Seema Verma the director of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid services joined South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster to announce new excuse me new work record Requirements for Medicaid recipients. South Carolina is now the first non-Medicaid expansion state to receive a waiver that will make the program more restrictive. Um, the The article goes on to quote um, a piece from the the Post and Courier um, that further explains, and I'll and I'll try to provide links to that content as well. But I wanted to hop down um, to later in the article. It it uh, it references uh, a letter that was written by Georgetown University Center for Children and Families. I'm gonna include a link to that letter as well um, because it just really shows you who the people are who are advocating for women, families, and children, how they see this issue and see this and see the issues that's gonna exasperate. Um, I won't read from that letter. It's really, really good. I posted it on Facebook and uh, shared it on Twitter as well. But what I'm going to do is is this, right? Let's take a turn and let's uh, get more history on this issue and also let you know or or inform many of you to how racial animus and racial politics plays into legislation like this. Uh, This is largely a dog whistle. If nothing more, it will definitely impact very, very real people. It will impact lives of poor people and those facing um, so many barriers to to just resources, but you know this this is also a dog whistle. So this is going to signal to a very specific uh, uh, citizen out there, a Trump supporter, yes, but a Trump supporter who loves um, to traffic in, in in racial animus and hatred. So um, the next clip I'm going to play uh, features the voice of Henry Louis Gates, and it gives you the background um, on the racial politics that pretty much drive this issue going back to the Reagan era, era and that mythical um, non, the mythical welfare queen um, image that he concocted. And so let's listen in and it's going to be followed by another clip. In
8: 1976, when Ronald Reagan pursued the Republican presidential nomination, he repeatedly told the story of an African-American woman named Linda Taylor claiming she was earning more than $150,000 a year by cheating social services, holding her up as an example of liberal policies gone wrong. Well,
3: perhaps some of you white people, I think I've done pretty damn good to be black.
8: The story grabbed attention, but had little basis in reality. Taylor was a con artist, and not at all representative of the typical welfare recipient.
7: The welfare queen image is a manufacturer of Ronald Reagan and the Republican
1: Party using one, one, only one story from Chicago in the 1970s of one woman who scammed something from the system and it's not entirely clear all that she scammed.
7: There's this notion that 99% of the welfare money in this society is going to Black and Hispanics. It's wrong, it's bogus, because the majority of people on welfare are white, the majority of people on food stamps
2: a oh, white? ain't no love in the heart of a city ain't no love in the heart
0: of the
8: Reagan's ain't attack no on welfare marked a significant change. Since the Great Depression, no the federal government had offered aid to poor people, the majority of whom were white. Ain't now, in financially insecure times, Reagan hinted that those programs, paid for by tax dollars, were only aiding black people. And he promised that cutting them would help fix the economy.
6: This is a turning point not only in the history of black people, but it's a turning point in the ways in which people can talk about poverty. Uh, Because we've moved from this idea of the deserving poor to the undeserving poor. And it's very much a kind of... Uh, emphasis upon uh, morality and moralism and all these kinds of things that uh, are much more invested in the idea of individual failure than asking how did we wind up with this population of impoverished people in the first place
1: okay really quickly this next clip features the author Josh Levine who wrote The Queen it's about the woman who inspired the mythical a welfare queen trope that Reagan relied upon. So uh, listen to this interview from PBS NewsHour.
2: The stereotype of the so-called welfare queen has been used to demonize those on public assistance for decades. It's a politically potent image depicting an undeserving aid recipient getting rich on the backs of taxpayers. Politicians, including former President Ronald Reagan, have been accused of exploiting this image as a kind of racist dog whistle. Meanwhile, the original welfare queen that Reagan used as a basis for his caricature was based on a real person. The new book, The Queen, tells the story of a woman who went by many names, was accused of many crimes, and whose image as a Cadillac-driving welfare recipient has lived on. Hari Srinivasan recently spoke with the book's author, Josh Levine, about the real-life woman behind the moniker.
9: Her name was Linda Taylor, and she was identified by the chicago tribune in 1974 as a person who had committed welfare fraud while driving fancy cars including a cadillac and very quickly after that she was given the nickname the welfare queen and it was a nickname and a stereotype that really very quickly blew up
10: you know it was a chicago paper that gave her that nickname but it's really ronald reagan on the campaign trail that makes that phrase such a household idea. Uh, How did it get from the Chicago paper uh, into his speeches?
9: Reagan was looking for kind of outrageous stories about welfare. And this idea that there were welfare cheats out there was something that created outrage. In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses,
11: 15 telephone numbers, To collect food stamps, Social Security, veterans' benefits for four non existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare. Her tax free cash income alone has been running $150,000
9: a year. And he didn't say the phrase welfare queen in his speeches, but there was such baggage attached to welfare at that point that I think the electorate really understood what he was saying and really knew what he was. Talking about, uh, welfare has been an effective talking point for a whole generation of politicians.
10: I have a plan to end welfare as we know it, to break the cycle of
9: welfare dependency. When Bill Clinton said he wanted to end welfare as we know it during his 1992 campaign, that was enormously popular with people on both sides of the aisle I think is partly responsible for um, his victory in 1992. And then when welfare reform passed in 1996, welfare went from being an entitlement to being uh, temporary assistance. Mm -hmm. And if you're below the requisite poverty level, you still don't necessarily get benefits today.
10: Tell us a little bit more about her. I mean, she was kind of a racial chameleon almost.
9: In the 70s, she was coded as being black. People perceived welfare recipients at that point Mm. as being black, but some of the first stories about her noted that she could change her identity by changing a wig, that she could be black or white or Latina or Filipina. And this was seen as just another example of her deviousness. But as I found in my research, her history with race is far more complicated and in many ways sad. She was born in the Deep South and was rejected by her white relatives due to her, you know, mixed-race identity. She was somebody who was forced to pass because of the way, growing up as a black person in a white family. Mm. In the South, it was illegal for her to be black in certain circumstances. It's just a very complicated and fraught history for her.
10: Do you think that this welfare queen idea would have stuck nearly as much if she had presented as a white woman or was just a white woman?
9: I think that she was the right person at the right place at the right time, mm. or depending on your vantage, the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. I think this idea of the welfare queen was something that was so powerful um, and such a you know strong message politically. And you can see that in how you know, she was arrested for kidnapping in Chicago. She was accused of murder. But all of that information got left out and sanded away. That's not something that Reagan ever mentioned,
10: certainly. I mean, that's some of the fascinating stuff around your reporting, is that while she's officially uh, arrested for welfare fraud, kidnapping and potential murder charges in her life uh, are some things that we don't hear about.
9: One of the more remarkable things... That I found in my research was that she was arrested and indicted for welfare fraud in 1974 when she's out on bail she is um, suspected of homicide a woman that she was living with died of a drug overdose and there was very strong reason to believe that Taylor had been responsible for it and yet um, she isn't ultimately charged when the story of her life is told contemporaneously in the news, on television, in speeches by Ronald Reagan and others, that just doesn't get mentioned at all. It's like it never even happened.
10: So what do we know about her today? Does she exist uh, anywhere? Did she die? Does she have family? What I've learned is that she went to prison for welfare fraud
9: in the late 1970s. When she got out, she eventually moved to Florida, And in the 90s, she was hit with federal charges there, ended up incarcerated. She was eventually released, and her family took her back to Illinois, where she died in 2002 in total obscurity and
10: under a different name. Josh, why do this story? Why spend years researching this? What drew you to it? I wasn't
9: aware that there had been a real-life model for the welfare queen myth and stereotype. Uh, When I learned about it back in 2012 that Linda Taylor had been really the first person to be given this nickname and that the image of the fur coats and the Cadillac came from her, I was fascinated both by that fact and the idea that a myth uh, and a stereotype could endure in a person's image, but that person herself could be forgotten and erased was just so kind of transfixing to me, and I became obsessed with trying to figure out who this person had been and why she had been forgotten.
10: All right, the book is called *The Queen*. Josh Levine, thanks so much. Thank you.
1: Uh, I was fascinated when I found out about that uh, that book that was recently written and published. Uh, that book authored by Josh Levine. So I'm, I'm, I'm really. Uh, Excited to read more about that uh, That that time That era it predates me uh, But how it still informs uh, Policy making today How it still informs how we Craft laws and who we, we view As deserving of of, of Entitlements or of the, Those social safety nets that Were put in place um, to help protect Folks from hitting rock bottom Especially after crashes that we've Experienced both in the 90s and As recently as 08 so Um, I'm really interested to learn more about this uh, stereotype and more also about the the sweeping reforms that took place, um, you know, when I was a little, little, little girl and even those that took place before I was born. Um, there's an article published by the Post and Courier uh, that I want to, I'll include that in the show notes. Um, but yeah, let's take another music break. Um, again, this is Miked Up on Ohm Radio. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden. All music featured on today's show. You can find out more about it at Bennystar, that's star with two Rs, sc.com, Bennystar, sc for more information but let's jump into another music break and then i'll come back on the other side
6: gave a 20 bill to a woman on the street for a fresh meal in front of a hotel that clipped the ribbon where the black folk used to be now hipsters living Poor folks under the bridge, yeah, that's the black zone. Black folks still get forced out of their black homes. So whenever I approach the topic or broach the logic, you better believe i be talking in a black tone. I'm witness to a city that turned God into capital. Bread and wine ain't really divine in this town. God bless the children who live in through all that. So maligned, yet aligned with this sound. See, I'm not a rich white girl in white pearls riding through the hood just to make it to the brewery. This ain't nothing new to me. It's another thing. When your life raft is in the path of a hurricane, what you gonna do when the water keeps rising? Tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising. Tell me what you're gonna do. Yeah. Tell me what you gonna do. Yeah, tell me what you gonna do. What you gon' do. Put the black man on the boat, black woman on the boat too. Spilling blood in the field is real, so everything a nigga sing feels spiritual. Came here in the Lord's name, white man brought the world war. We got a boat full of rebels and we pulling up. Revolution on the shore. Tell me what you gon' do when the water starts rising. Yeah, tell me how you gonna survive it? What you gonna do when the water starts rising? Yeah, how you gonna colonize it? What you gonna do when the rain brings heaven down to the hell that you raised up all around us? What you gonna do when the water keeps rising? You realizing that the water don't drown us. What you gonna do? Gave a $20 bill to a woman on the street for a fresh meal In front of the hotel that clipped the ribbon Where the black folk used to be now Hipsters living poor folk under the bridge That's a black zone Black folk get forced out of the black home Whenever I approach the topic or approach the logic You better nigga be talking in a black tone I'm a witness to a city that turned God the capital bread and wine ain't really divine in this town God bless the kids who living through all that Maligned and aligned with this sound I'm not a rich white girl and white pearls Who riding through the hood just to make it to the brewery This ain't nothing new to me This is another thing When your life rap is in the past Of a hurricane, what you gonna do when the water keeps rising? Yeah, tell me how you gonna survive it. What you gonna do when the water keeps rising? Yeah, how you gonna colonize it? What you gonna do when the rain brings heaven down to the hell that you raised up all around us? What you gonna do when the water keeps rising? You realizing that the water don't drown us? What you gonna do? White Charleston, tell me what you gonna do. Rich Charleston, tell me what you finna do. I can't hear y'all. Tell me what you gonna do. I got a message for you. Tell me what you gon' do when the water keeps rising. Yeah, tell me how you gon' survive it. What you gon' do when the water keeps rising? Yeah, how you finna colonize it? What you gon' do when the rain brings heaven down to the hell that you raised up all around us? What you finna do when the water keeps rising? You realizing that the water won't drown us. What they finna do? Yeah, I want it to myself. Tell me what they finna do? Yeah, yeah, I wanna know right now. Tell me what you finna do? Yeah yeah. I don't know about you, tell me what you finna do. Yeah, tell me right now what you finna do when the water keeps rising. Tell me what you finna do when the water keeps rising. Yeah, tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising. Tell me what you finna do when the water keeps rising. How you gonna survive it, tell me how you gonna colonize it. Tell me what you gonna do when the water keeps rising. Tell me what you gonna do. Tell me what you're going to do when the water keeps rising. What you going to do? One question for you. I don't know about you. Tell me what you're going to tell me what you're going to.
1: Okay. So, uh, Oh, welcome back. Let me, let me ease back no, into I the formalities you. for those listening live. Welcome back to mic up on, on radio. I'm your host, Amika Gadston, And today we're talking about the recent changes proposed by the Trump administration, uh, to make access to SNAP benefits or food stamps more restrictive. Uh, and we're also uh, detailing how it's going to impact those here in South Carolina. And now, especially given the fact that our governor, Governor Henry McMaster, has um, recently just signed into law, an extra, an added layer of restrictions, um, the work requirement laws. Uh, South Carolina is now the first non-Medicaid expansion state to uh, include a, to enact a waiver that makes uh, it extra hard to receive these benefits. Um, it's a dog whistle. It's blatantly um, trafficking in racial animus and racial racial hatred. We just kind of dove into that before the music break where we heard about, we heard from first Henry Louis Gates and a little montage of scholars and historians who spoke about the infamous welfare queen uh, stereotype and how it influences policy even today. And then you uh, heard from Josh Levine, the author of the book, The Queen, which uh, dives into that actual real life person that inspired uh, a con artist, a criminal, a lifelong criminal con artist, a woman with a very, very complicated past. Um, You know how uh, this woman, this caricature uh, that Reagan created out of her life uh, and how that, again, impacts uh, how we view who receives what benefits and why. Um, I'm trying to restrain myself in terms of... um, Going in about philanthropy, I know for those who listen to me, you know that I I am very critical of our local and statewide uh, nonprofit industrial complex, because I think that what these restrictions now will do was un- unfortunately will face people in position where they're now going to have to rely upon food pantry services, which is actually not a bad thing at all. Um, shout out to Low Country Food Bank. We need these emergency services in place when things like this happen. But what we don't want to do is um, become uh, we don't want to become desensitized to the reliance on pantries. We want to make sure that we address this issue at the root. It does start with holding our elected officials accountable, um, but also speaking up about what causes, how how this issue is caused. And that's why I hope the clips in this show help you understand the problem is not just about people not willing to work or people who can't get out of their own way. This is not a bootstraps conversation. There are certain laws that come down on folk and it lands a different way. And then when you mix in a recession like in 08 or even back in the 90s, when you mix in those other factors that we can't plan for, well, then we're setting up families, families who are experiencing food insecurity. We're setting them up for failure. And so um, this next clip is going to give you a comprehensive history lesson. It's rather lengthy, but it's worth it. It's from New York, Times, the New York Times, and it gives you the history of um, welfare reform and all of that. So please listen to this. And again, I'll pro- provide a lot of links if you listen to this show on SoundCloud or iTunes. How many years have you gone without a job? I can't think. How long? It's been a long time. Welfare reform...
0: By the mid-1990s, a drumbeat of media attention had convinced many Americans that people on welfare were either cheats... With wigs and disguises, she conned welfare workers into believing she was 12 different people. ...or loafers. Some people on welfare make more money than people that are working.
2: Why should we have to pay for you to sit at home Watch your soap
0: operas. The number of Americans receiving cash benefits had hit a record 14 million, and Republicans wanted radical change.
7: They create a culture of poverty and a culture of violence which
0: is destructive of the civilization. So how did a Democrat become the one to do away with this once sacred entitlement?
7: Today we are ending welfare as we know it.
0: And 20 years later, how are the poor doing without it?
7: the President of the United States signed the measure, an act to
0: safeguard children, to help working men and women forestall poverty and want. Created in the 1930s to help destitute widows with children, welfare had evolved into a $25 billion entitlement, serving a growing number of unwed mothers.
1: My mother had me when she was 16, and I had him when I was 16.
8: Welfare has proliferated and grown into a leviathan of unsupportable
0: dimensions. Republicans had been trying to overhaul welfare for decades.
11: I think the Republican diagnosis was accurate, that there were way too many moms on welfare. If they would get jobs, it would be better for them, and better for their kids, and better for society.
0: But in a political twist, it was a Democrat in 1992 who grabbed onto the issue and made it his own. There are a new generation
11: of Democrats, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, and they don't think the way the old Democratic Party did. Welfare should be
0: a second chance, not a way of life. Bill Clinton proposed putting time limits on cash assistance and requiring recipients to go to work, an approach that appealed to conservative voters having doubts about the young governor from Arkansas.
7: During the New Hampshire primary, he uh, was in trouble. He had maybe evaded the draft a little bit. Maybe he had used marijuana, but maybe he didn't inhale. There was talk of womanizing Jennifer Flowers. So yes, welfare was very important to his being nominated. No one wants to change the welfare system as badly as those who are trapped in it.
0: Once in office, Clinton's focus was on creating jobs for welfare mothers, but Republicans sought more punitive measures.
7: Let's talk about what the welfare state has created. Let's talk about the moral decay.
0: To curb soaring out of wedlock births, they proposed cutting off welfare to unwed mothers who continued to have children. Don't feed the alligators. In a bitter debate, a Republican congressman compared welfare recipients to animals living off handouts, while a Democrat invoked Nazi Germany. This Republican
7: proposal certainly isn't the Holocaust, but I'm concerned. They're coming for our children. They're coming for the poor.
0: Clinton vetoed two Republican bills as too harsh. But up for re-election in 1996, he signed a third. Welfare recipients would have to find work or else.
2: After two consecutive years on welfare, or five years over a lifetime, benefits can be cut off, whether or not the recipient has a job.
11: Many other benefits-
0: Ron Haskins, who helped draft the Republican bill, says it was a revolution in policy. Americans, no matter how poor, would no longer be guaranteed cash help from the government.
11: Think of a Democratic president that would sign a welfare reform bill like that. President Gore wouldn't have done it. Kennedys would have never done it. There are many Republicans that wouldn't have done a bill as tough as the one that was passed in 1996.
2: There's going to be a million children thrust into poverty by this bill.
0: Peter Edelman and other Clinton administration officials resigned in protest.
7: Nobody has any legal right to get assistance, so therefore you're free to turn people away. And I was always clear that that spelled big, big,
0: big trouble. The new law was an experiment, giving individual states vast new powers to decide how to spend welfare funds and who could receive them. What happened next shocked nearly everyone.
10: The White House announced today that federal efforts to reform welfare have worked even better than expected. With a
0: booming economy and plentiful jobs, welfare recipients left the rolls in droves, as many as 200,000 a month. A lot of mothers went to work.
11: Sixty percent of them, roughly, got jobs. They earned about eight or nine bucks an hour. Child poverty declined uh, to its lowest level ever for Kids in female-headed families, I mean, that's an astounding change.
10: Waxler
7: took part in a welfare-to-work training program after being on public assistance for nearly two
0: years. Now she supports herself. The media generally portrayed the new program, called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF, as a success. By 2000, welfare caseloads had sunk to their lowest level in 30 years.
7: Anytime time you allow the states to have the opportunity to set up programs that are actually going to work in their states, you're going to be much better off.
0: But that narrative was about to change. Welfare reform was conceived and implemented in the mid to late 90s when the economy was booming. But that was then. This, this is a very different now. With the new millennium came an economic downturn, and in 2008, the Great Recession. American workers were laid off the job last month in numbers not seen in over three decades. To make matters worse, state budgets were in free fall, and the hunt was on for new revenues. Jody Liggett worked for the Arizona state government when TANF began.
4: In a state like Arizona, we're not going to raise taxes on folks, um, if at all possible. And there is this big fat bag of money <laughs> with TANF written on the outside of it. The temptation is just too great.
0: Using their new authority under the welfare law, states siphoned off billions in TANF money to pay for everything from pre-K programs to college scholarships.
2: The numbers are staggering.
0: In Arizona, it was foster care.
2: Nearly 18,000 kids are in the state system.
0: Arizona moved 75% of its welfare money into child protection and other services, leaving little for job training, child care, and cash assistance for the poor the core purposes of TANF.
4: The flexibility in TANF um, and the things that states did were absolutely perfectly legal. But if you're spending less than 20% of the poverty program on poverty, that really says something about your values.
7: It's not as if those dollars were removed to build roads and bridges. They were used to support another important function of the safety net, and that's strengthening families. So the monies were not hijacked.
0: But having spent the money elsewhere, states came up short when demand for welfare spiked during the economic crash. So they changed the rules.
7: We saw states creating more barriers at the front end to make it harder for families to actually get on assistance. We saw states cutting time limits during a time when there was no work available not because people didn't need assistance, but because they couldn't get the money back that they had put into other things.
0: Some states also reduced benefits. Last year, Starsha West, a 26-year-old single mother from Phoenix, applied for TANF for the second time in her young life. Her monthly payment, $237.
1: At the time, I needed it. Like, me and my kids' father had split. So at the time, I did need it. Um, I wasn't working. I needed to take care of my children.
0: West also applied for food stamps and began looking for work. She and her children found housing through a local homeless shelter.
1: I'm grateful for me and my children to have a roof over our head. I see a lot of homeless people, a lot of homeless women with children, so it's
2: kind of hard.
0: She's lucky to have gotten help. Despite having the third highest poverty rate in the nation, Arizona has moved 27,000 people off welfare since the recession, whether they had a job or not. There is an
7: overarching mindset that public assistance should be temporary, that it should be reserved for the most needy, and that we should be about helping people get on their way.
0: The effect of that mindset, nationally, is that welfare is now a shadow of its former self. Twenty years ago, 68 out of every 100 poor families in the U.S. received cash assistance. Today, that number is 23. But in conservative states like Arizona and Indiana, it's 8. In Texas, 5. Louisiana, 4. Cash
7: assistance is dead, uh, really dead, uh, in um, more than half of, of the states in the country. So the consequence is big increases in extreme poverty, deep poverty, incomes
0: that are below half the poverty line. Today, 46 million Americans live in poverty, nearly half in deep poverty, meaning incomes of around $10,000 a year or less. With cash assistance waning, other government entitlements, like food stamps and disability pensions, have seen record enrollments. Now they're under attack as the new welfare. The United States
10: of America or the United States of Entitlement.
2: Taxpayer dollars to buy stuff at an adult store called Kiss My Lingerie.
10: Twenty
0: years ago, Bill Clinton had high hopes for welfare reform.
11: After I sign my name to this bill, welfare will no longer be a political issue.
0: What does he think now?
11: I did not foresee that. I didn't foresee this wave, this Tea Party wave that would believe one more time that poor people are the problem in
0: America. The former president and his wife, candidate Hillary Clinton, say his landmark law could use improvement and admit that too many who need assistance aren't getting it.
11: It did far more good than harm, but now, given the changed climate and the aftermath of the crash, the poorest welfare families, about 15% of the total, are worse off, and we should do something for them.
0: And we ought to, all of us who support it should admit that. But many conservatives still celebrate welfare reform for ending dependency and cutting rolls from 14 million to four. Now they want to do to food stamps what was done to welfare, hand over the reins to the states. Ron Haskins says welfare reform brought needed change, but is cautious about giving states too much control of other entitlements.
11: I have to say that what has happened with welfare reform has caused me to reevaluate my confidence that the states will do the right thing. Because we have states that are very conservative and they're going to spend the money where they think it should be spent and not where you think it should be spent.
7: I would characterize TANF 20 years in as a bold experiment that failed. It's this expectation that states will do a better job. a better job doesn't mean increasing the number of people um, who are in deep poverty, which is what we saw. I mean, that's what states did.
0: As for Starsha West, she is now off welfare and food stamps. But like many former welfare recipients, she has joined the ranks of the working poor. Her job at a daycare center pays $9 an hour, leaving her family still below the poverty line.
1: I'm happy. but. If push comes to shove and I had the result in, you know, turning back, then that's just something that I have to do.
0: But she may not be able to turn back to welfare. In July, Arizona will impose a new time limit on benefits of one year, the shortest in the nation. That means roughly 1,600 families could lose cash assistance, including 2,700 uh, Quick
1: show note that clip that you just listened to from New York Times uh, that clip is from 2016 so if certain things sounded a little dated uh, that's why uh, I hope today's show shed light on this issue this issue that is facing potentially hundreds of thousands of South Carolinians who already experience food insecurity. I hope this prompts you to learn more about the issue uh, please make sure you support uh, the local reporting uh, both the state newspaper, and uh, out of Columbia and the Post and Courier have been doing a great job um, highlighting this this issue and reporting on it. Uh, so please do so. Learn more about this. And also, um, you know, uh, just just read more, uh, find out more information about how this uh, the moves like this impact so many people, so many people who are already disadvantaged. Also, check out that article from New York Magazine. Um, For those of y'all, oh, and also, you know, if you listen to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, links to the articles and clips featured will be in the show notes. Until next time, everybody, thank you for rocking with me. Stay black.